Well, good morning. Thank you for being here this morning. And uh, I do have to say that, as Paul was saying that about my children, one of the things that I do brag about and, and can say is, and bragging about them as far as what God has done in their lives and has used this church in the fact that my children know Christ. And we've been here for 18 years, and under the teaching of Dr. Youssef and under the children's ministry and the student ministry, I have no doubt that my children are walking, they're not perfect by any means, but walking with the Lord because of what God has done in this church and through this church, and my family has benefited greatly from it. It's been a blessing. And so I get emotional when I think about that. But looking at our passage this morning, Psalm 51 um, this is a psalm that I spend a lot of time in. I try to go through the psalms um, in a month, and Psalm 51 is one that I've spent a lot of time in over the years, and out of all the psalms, I've shed many a tears as I've read through Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is one of several penitential psalms, and each the author acknowledges or confesses his trespasses before the Lord and recognizes his need for God's favor and forgiveness. This psalm and many others that are the penitential psalms make fitting prayers for the repentant sinner. And this is, I would say, probably one of the most familiar psalms. And it's been called the sinner's guide. It is King David's prayer of repentance after the prophet Nathan confronted him with his sins. And you can find that in 2 Samuel chapter 12. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and covered it up by having her husband Uriah killed. And the words of Psalm 51 pour forth from David's darkest moments of self-awareness. He acknowledges the depth of his sin and guilt, and he pleads for God's mercy. It is said that this psalm was recited in full by Sir Thomas More and Lady Jane Grey in the 1500s, right before their execution during the bloody days of Henry VIII and Queen Mary. William Carey, the great pioneer missionary to India, asked that Psalm 51 would be the text that would be read at his funeral. I don't know how many of you have experienced the awkward situation of someone like a good friend or maybe a spouse coming to you about something that you've done in your life that they needed to talk to you. More than likely, everyone in this room has experienced a confrontation with someone like that, a friend or a family member. Maybe it didn't go well. Maybe it did go well. And God used that situation in your life to point some things out in your life, particularly about sin. It could have been with mom or dad or a, a coach or a teacher or a roommate, a co-worker. Maybe you've had that situation where you've had to confront someone about something that's been bothering you, been eating at you. You know what the feelings can be like when you think about confrontation. It can produce a lot of anxiety. It can literally make a person sick thinking about an upcoming confrontation. Most people... I would say most people do not handle confrontation well. I remember right after college, I was living with two guys, and I 
can relate to Psalm 51 from this perspective. During that time, as I was living with those two guys, I had this thought of, you know what? I've not really done a whole lot of bad things in my life, and I think I'm going to enjoy some of the things that I've never done. And so I started in a pursuit of living a life that was according to the flesh, not according to the spirit. And it went on for several months. And during that time, I found myself not going to church as much. I quit hanging around my roommates who were very strong Christians because I felt guilty. I did not want them to really know what I was doing. And one night, I came home late, about one o'clock in the morning, hoping to avoid them. And I shared a room with one. And I walked in my bedroom, pitch dark, and I see across the room a figure sitting on the other side of the room on their bed. And it scared me. It frightened me. I was like, whoa, somebody is sitting up. I can't even see who it is. And I said, Scott, Mark, what are you doing? I'm waiting on you. I said, uh, okay. He said, we need to talk. And so he started to say to me, hey, I've noticed a lot of things about you. And I grew up with this guy, so I couldn't get away uh, with anything with this guy. I grew up with him. He said, I've started noticing a lot of things, a lot of changes in your life. And you're avoiding me and Don. What's going on? And at first I said, nothing. I, nothing's going on. I'm okay. He pressed a little bit more. And then the Lord used that for me to confess things to him that was going on in my life. And it was like a floodgate. I, I was ashamed of the things that I was sharing with him. And I thought, once I do this, he's probably going to get up, walk out of this room, and be like, I don't want to have anything to do with you. But Scott looked at me and he said, Mark, I want you to know I struggle with similar things. But why have you not been able to come to me and talk to me? I love you. You're like my brother. And I can tell you it was at that moment that God used Scott in my life to confront me, to bring me to a place of where I needed to be. And that was crying out to God and asking for forgiveness. And instead of being angry toward my friend, produced even greater love for him because he loved me. In this situation... The background for this psalm, and you can, again, look at it, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, where David had taken Bathsheba. He had Uriah killed, and God sends Nathan to confront David about his sin. Now, the period that it expired from the time of David's sin to the confrontation by Nathan, most scholars would say approximately about a year, give or take a little bit. Can you imagine knowing what you've done, and living in that day after day after day. And then you're confronted. And it would be easy to say, who are you talking to, Nathan? Don't you know who I am? But David, and we see in this psalm, he turns to God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. See, David knew the character of God. 
He knew that he could cry out to God during this time after he had been confronted. And he says, have mercy on me, God, according to your steadfast love. He does not say according to anything that I've accomplished in the past. Remember when I was a shepherd? Remember when I did all of these things? He didn't say according to anything that I've accomplished as the king. He doesn't say any of that. He says, have mercy according to your steadfast love. Steadfast love is a translation from the Hebrew word hesed. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Jonathan. And it's mentioned 196 times in the Old Testament, 127 times in the Psalms alone. And that's one thing in my, in my Psalms, I have that word circled throughout the Psalms. The steadfast love of the Lord. Blot out my transgressions, which mean or can mean obliterate it. Totally do away with it. So he turns to God. Now think about this. How many times when we are living in sin, we know of our sin. We, what do we, and I say we, I'm including me, have a habit of doing? Turning to other things. Whether it might be our occupation, whether it might be sports, exercise, whatever, unfortunately, others turn to, and I've talked with many people, drugs and alcohol and other things, to fill their minds or at least take their minds off of things of life and having to deal with those very difficult things. David turns to God. He's at a place where he says, I know who I need to turn to. And it's to my father because of his steadfast love. He prays for cleansing. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The washing, David realized, must be thorough, and only God can do it. The person who does not care that much about their sin says, just give me a little, wa a little take a washcloth, kind of clean it up a little, a little dab here, I'll do it, clean my face, everything else will be okay. When my children, and probably you can relate to this, would come in filthy from playing outside, and they're getting maybe ready for bed, and you say, hey, we need to get a bath. We need to clean up and, and get ready to go to bed. And they, oh, just wash my face. I, that's it. I mean, or just, you know, instead of, no, we got to scrub. We got to clean. We got to get you ready. You're not getting, my wife used to say, there ain't no way in the world you're getting in the bed looking like this, right? We got to get you cleaned up. A thorough cleaning, cleansing is what David is crying out for because he knows the filth that he needs to be delivered from. David uses in this verse and in this psalm the words transgressions, iniquity, and sin. In Psalm 32, 5, David says, I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Basically, these three words communicate the same idea, evil and lawlessness as defined by God. We know in this room, and we've been taught, that sin means to miss the mark. 
It can refer to doing something against God or against a person. Failing to do something that you know is right. In the Old Testament, God even instituted sacrifices for unintentional sins. And we had that earlier when we talked about, when we read the confession. Sin is the general term for anything that falls short of the glory of God, according to Romans 3.23. But transgressions. In verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. To transgress is to choose intentionally to disobey, to willfully trespass. When I was a high school student, you're probably looking at the only guy that survived, along with my buddies, climbing up the wrong side of Stone Mountain. If you've ever been to Stone Mountain, you know there's one way to climb up. Well, we had the bright idea as high school students, let's take a challenge and go up the backside. And guess what? Big no trespassing signs all over the area. And we're dumb enough. And we said, you know what? We don't care. And we climbed up Stone Mountain, the backside, and realized coming back down that backside we were a bunch of idiots. I mean, we were like, you talking about praying? Lord, if I ever get down this mountain, I won't ever, <laughs> I won't ever do anything wrong, please. It was the scariest thing I've ever done. But willfully, the thing is, is willfully we disobeyed. We thought we knew better. We thought that no big deal. Nobody's going to find out. And we trespassed. And then David talks about iniquity. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This is more deeply rooted. Iniquity refers to premeditated choice. To commit iniquity is to continue without repentance. David's sin with Bathsheba that led to killing of her husband Uriah was iniquity. Woe to those who plan iniquity and to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. This is Micah 2.1. David's psalm of repentance, he cries out to God saying, Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Notice he doesn't use the word mistakes. Unfortunately, in our world today, even in the church, I thank God not here from the pulpit. But in our world today, in the church, a lot of times, love to use the word mistake. I was at a concert not long ago, maybe three or four years ago, and a worship leader came out. And these are people who love the Lord. And so I'm not meaning to say these people are not Christians or anything like that. But as they were trying to communicate to this crowd of people, about life and living their lives for God. They started talking about God forgiving your mistakes. And I just kept cringing because I thought, no, mistake is when you tell me to go down the hall to the men, find the men's bathroom and it's to the left and I take a right. That's a mistake. Sin is willful rebellion against God. So be careful in the language that we use, particularly when we're communicating to our children. 
It's not mistakes. Sin. Jesus died for our sin. He didn't die for mistakes. David realizes that he needs this cleansing because his, son, his sin runs deep in him. The words wash and cleanse come from this ceremonial system where they refer to rites that allow a person to come safely in God's presence. And David in verse 7 talks about using a hyssop branch to cleanse him of his sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. The hyssop plant had branches that could be used by priests to dip in blood and sprinkle on a house that had a disease in it. Or it was used in ceremonies to point to something to be cleansed. We don't look to a hyssop plant today. We look to the blood of Christ that was shed for us to cleanse us from our sin. Earlier in our time of praying with the group that I was praying with, one of the things I am so thankful for, and I daily, so thankful for the promise that we find in 1 John 1, 9 and 10 that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So David turns to the Lord. He confesses the seriousness of his sin. He has a hard time getting it out of his mind. He had hidden this or had this going on for at least a year. It's probably on his mind frequently. And Arthur Pink, if you've ever read Arthur Pink, he feels like Psalm 32 is related to Psalm 51. His sin was great and he felt it and he knew that it was against God. David wasn't saying that he had not done anything wrong against Uriah or against Bathsheba. He realized that his sin was an act of rebellion against God and it was awful. In verse 4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. There's no defense for David. David is acknowledging God would be justified in whatever God might do to David. If God were to strike David down at that moment, God would be innocent is what David was saying. When we view sin the same way that David viewed sin, we come to the same conclusion. We don't deserve anything. I used to tell my children all the time, you don't deserve anything. Life's not about you. It's about living your life for the honor and glory of Christ. And the fact that you and I are breathing right now, the fact that our heart is beating, is God's mercy and his love. Verse 5, David points out his sinful nature that he's born with. It's not to diminish his guilt. I used to have the issue of saying, well, the reason why I get so angry is because I have Irish blood. Used to justify my anger all the time when I would do something awful. It's just the way I am, it's my heritage. Us Irish folk, 
get fired up. What David is saying that his nature is sinful and he would do more evil things if God didn't rescue him from doing those things. He admits in verse 6, he says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He admits that he sinned not just against an external law, but against God's merciful light in his heart. God had made him wise. God had been his teacher, but sin had gotten the upper hand in his life and it made it worse for David. Let me say this. God delights in us being honest about who we are and truthful about what we've done. When my children have come to me and said, Dad, I've done these things, and I'll tell you that in just a moment about one of my youngest one. It delights me to know that my son, my child, can be truthful with me. And then David pleads for renewal. Now, in case you're getting nervous, I'm not going to go verse by verse. Uh, we're almost done. But he pleads for renewal. He prays for a heart. In verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He prays for a heart and a spirit that are new and right and firm. This unwavering spirit, he wants to be done with the kind of instability that he's just experienced. Verse 13. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. He states that his life will be fixed on helping others to return to the Lord. And then in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. There's two books I want to encourage you to think about reading if you haven't read them before. One is The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. Two is The Acceptable Sacrifice, The Excellency of a Broken Heart by John Bunyan. Many of you are familiar with John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. But he wrote a book on verse 17. They're wonderful books. I'm almost finished with the one with John Owen. A broken and a contrite heart is the mark of God's children. See, it's one thing, and you know this, and you probably have said this to your children. It's one thing to say you're sorry because you have to. I was talking to my 81-year-old mother the other day, and I was saying, you know, we were kind of reminiscing, and I was kind of admitting to her, you know, when you used to tell me you need to go tell your brothers and sisters you're sorry, it typically was under the threat of, or you're going to get a what? Spanking, right? You better go do this, or you're going to get this. So David... After this confrontation, he turns to God. He cries out 
for cleansing because he knows how awful his sin is. But David's not in despair of that God won't forgive him. He knows God's character and he knows that he can go and cry out for mercy and that he'll be forgiven because he knows the steadfast love of God. And that should, when we think about that, it ought to bring us to tears that we have a father who loves us. Paul talked about that just a moment ago. Who delights in us, who loves us. But he also loves when we come to him and say, Father, I've done these awful things and I'm asking you to forgive me. He delights in that. He delights in forgiving and restoring. And David knew that. A broken and a contrite heart. In closing, I recently was dealing with a situation with my youngest son. And it was a very difficult thing that we were dealing with. Young man getting ready to graduate high school. And Paul talked about me bragging on my, my kids. Like I said, the, the thing that I'm so thankful for because I didn't have this. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. The thing that excites me the most about my children is that they know Christ. I've told them all their lives, regardless of what you do for an occupation, It doesn't matter if you're a good athlete, a good musician, student, whatever. What I care most is that you would know Christ and you would live your life for his honor and glory. That's all I, what I really care about. And as I was dealing with my, my son in this not easy conversation... The one thing I do, I am very thankful for is that he was honest. He didn't even blink an eye when I asked him what he had done. It actually, it caught me off guard. <laughs> he was so brutally honest. And it was a long conversation. With tears. After a couple of days, he came to me. And it wasn't because he had been punished. But he came to me and shared some other things that he had been struggling with. And he wept. And as he was sharing with me his heart, tears were streaming down his face. And he said, Dad, I want you to know I'm truly sorry for what I did. And I want you to know that I honestly 
want to glorify God with my life. How do you think that made me feel? Nope, not good enough, son. Get out of here, and when you can come up with something better, come back. No, you haven't suffered enough. No. No, you've not cried enough. I don't really believe it. Dad, I want you to know that I honestly want to glorify God with my life. This young man demonstrated to me at that moment a broken and a contrite heart. This is what he demonstrated to me. Because see, his confession and him coming to me two days after that had nothing to do with the fact I had put him on restriction or had taken the car away from him. It had nothing to do with any of that. It had to do with the fact that by God's grace and mercy, he was under conviction. And he came and said, I want you to know where my heart is. My words to him that night, as I wept, was thank you for sharing that with me, and I love you. You're my son. What do you think our Heavenly Father does when we come to him with a broken and contrite heart? We sing the song, Good Father. You're a good father. A good father doesn't look at his child who comes and says, forgive me. He doesn't say, get out of my sight. I want nothing to do with you. He says, I love you. You're my son. You're my daughter. I forgive you. And that's what, what David knew. David knew that he could turn to God, confess his sin, cry out for cleansing, plead for renewal, and I didn't have this in my notes, but to be able to walk. From that moment on, knowing that his father had forgiven him, he had been cleansed. And to walk in a, in a way to glorify God. And that's what we see with David. He was not a perfect man, but he was a man who wanted to glorify God. May we this morning, and only you and the Lord know, maybe your spouse, of things that you're dealing with when it comes to sin. And a lot of times we don't like to admit that because it can be embarrassing can have shame. But I can tell you personally that when we go to the Lord 
and asks for forgiveness. Not only does he forgive us and cleanse us, but it says he cleanses. And we have his righteousness. But it is so freeing when we go to Christ and ask for forgiveness. It's so freeing when we go to one another and say, I've done those things. I've done these things. I've said these things. I've acted these ways. Please forgive me. The joy and the freedom that we have when we do that, it's a wonderful gift. And we have that in Christ Jesus. When we come to him and say, Father, forgive me. With a broken and a contrite heart. And he says, I love you. Go and live for my honor and glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today and for your many blessings. Thank you for your love, your mercy, your goodness. And Father, there's nothing that we've done that you cannot nor will not forgive us and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. And there may be those in this room this morning who are really struggling with sin in their life. Maybe shame. I pray, Lord, that this morning, after hearing your word through the power of the Holy Spirit, under conviction, that they would cry out to you, knowing that you're the only one who can set them free, who can forgive them and cleanse them, and not remember it anymore, so that they might walk in the newness of life and live for your honor and glory. And may that freedom come this morning to each one of our hearts as we cry out to you for forgiveness and cleansing. And may we live our lives for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.